opportunity to give God praise in heaven forever. It's one of the reasons that our practice of that praise is so important week after week while we live here. As 2024 gets underway, we are just 10 months from yet another presidential election. As so often in the past, polls indicate that the economy is one of the key concerns influencing voters again this time. And inflation's been a factor. Over the last few years, that that has reduced the spendable income of millions of people, prompting many to cut back on expenses but prompting many more to choose the more appealing option of finding more money, some way to get more so that I can continue to live the way I want, continue to please myself with what I have to enjoy. That's the method of choice because that communicates directly with every human heart. We are tempted, regularly tempted, to focus on accumulating wealth and the things that it can buy. Greed exists, of course, with or without inflation. But in some ways, inflation just gives us an additional excuse for chasing after the very thing we crave anyway, a little bit more. God's people face that pressure as much as anyone else. But according to our passage today in Matthew 26, we, as God's people, have much more at stake. This passage is going to tell us, remind us as Many other passages do as well, that love for money competes with love for God. That's a constant competition going on. This passage is a clear call as the uh, gospel writer uses this to introduce the Lord's Supper. We wouldn't probably have put those two side by side, but the Holy Spirit directed Matthew to do that. And so this becomes our call today to examine your own heart. Examine that competition between love for things, pleasing yourself, and love for the Lord, pleasing him. Would you open to Matthew 26, beginning at verse 14, this this verse starts with the word then, telling us that this passage, that this account is connected to the previous one, not just in sequence, but perhaps also as cause. What has transpired in the earlier verses of this chapter becomes a major factor as to why verse 14 reports what it does. What it reports is that one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot 
went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? As Pastor Chris said, introducing this passage for our scripture reading this morning, this is an awful uh, thing for a disciple to do. This is almost incomprehensible. How could a disciple of the Lord, somebody that has followed him, someone who, who has responded to the call, someone who has given up much in order to serve the Lord, how could he do this? Well, let's just take a real quick look back at those previous verses to see what was going on. And this is the account of uh, a woman at, at Bethany. We find out elsewhere in Scripture that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and, uh, and Lazarus. And during dinner, she approaches and takes this very expensive perfume and pours it on the Lord. Apparently, the whole thing, imagine emptying a bottle of very strong, very fragrant perfume and just emptying the whole thing onto uh, one object. Uh, this would become the dominant aroma. Doesn't matter what was cooking for dinner, this is now what everybody smells. And Matthew tells us that it, this upset the disciples, and it, it includes them all as a group. But John's account gives us insight about this. This is John chapter 12, recording the very same episode. He says, it was Judas who said this. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas said it. And then later, writing about this later, John goes on to explain that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag. That is, he was the group treasurer, treasurer of the disciples. And from that role, John tells us he used to help himself to what was put into it. Why wasn't that sold and that money put into my bag where I could have had access to it? What's going on in Judas's heart? This is clearly greed. Judas had some things already, illicitly. He wants more. He's not satisfied because when the love for money begins to grow, it soon becomes dominant in the life. And this, one of his disciples, one of Christ's disciples, uh, we could wonder how could that be, but there's more insight about that coming. So that seems to be what, maybe not the only factor, but that final straw uh, Judas just could hardly stand to see that waste of that ointment. And so, based on that, then one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and essentially says, how much is he worth to you? How much 
can I gain by betraying him? Now, we would wonder, why did the disciples, uh, why, why did the chief priests need one of the disciples to help them? Well, their dilemma is that they had already decided they are going to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. But they are also very aware of his popularity with the people, and he would regularly be spending time right there in public in the temple, and they were just seething with anger that because they couldn't arrest him publicly or the people would come after them. What they need is a private arrest. But where do they find him when the crowds are gone? How can they ever locate him in a secret way and arrest him? That's where they need help. And that's the help that Judas is offering. Already then we see that the world can offer some incentive. Is there a portion of your heart that loves money, that would love to have more, well, the world has some to offer. And the world is eager to bargain with you. How much do you need in order to trade your, your love for Christ as your priority, to trade that to get what you want. Reduce the status of Christ in your heart. Now, Judas is selling out, but that's not where temptation starts. Temptation starts by just taking a little bit of your attention from Christ and putting it over here, pleasing yourself just a little bit. Love for things can grow. Greed can become dominant. How much can I get? The world is ready to answer. And at the same time, love for Christ will fade. The two of them always are in opposite proportion. Love for the world, love for the things of this world, your love for Christ is waning. Last part of verse 15 says, they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Oh, I wonder how much that is. Well, we find out elsewhere in scripture that this is the, uh, the usual price of, uh, and a low price, this is the minimum price of just a common slave. This is not much value. This is something significant for Judas, Probably more money than he's got in the money bag right now. And this goes directly into his own pocket. But this is a very low price. Sadly, Satan in his bargaining technique usually finds that people don't value Christ very much. That it doesn't take a great deal to say, all right, yeah, that might be a good trade for me. Last fall, a three-term senator from New Jersey was indicted on corruption charges. 
He is accused of using his official influence as a United States senator to benefit the government of Egypt in exchange for bribes totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars. Just last week, additional charges were brought against that same man and his wife, uh, now accusing him of also doing favors for the country of Qatar and gaining more from that, uh, and sometimes in terms of a $25,000 watch or some other items. Even the Senate Majority Leader, a member of, his own, of the same party, has called for him to step down. I mean, this, is, this has to be pretty clear for, uh, for, for him to, to do that. But if, and if proven guilty in court, which hasn't happened yet, that's coming up this year. If proven guilty in court, this will turn out to be one of the most uh, uh, worst instances in U.S. history of a high government official accepting bribes for his own personal benefit at the cost of his country. Despite the evidence, though, he still claims to have done nothing wrong. That, of course, is the natural response that God's people must avoid. This passage is going to become a little more intense as we move into the next few verses. A little more intense in calling for an examination of your heart. And your response can be that initial, oh, no, I'm not guilty of that. No way. That's not me. But wait, not so fast. This passage urges, no, take a look. Take a deep look. Take an honest look as you examine your, your own heart. The next few verses are transitional. Matthew has a very brief account. Some of the other gospel writers give us a little more information. But verse 17 says, On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He responds to that legitimate question in a very vague way. It's actually even a little more vague than Matthew communicates. He says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, and turns out, how did they know who the certain man was? He's not giving a name. He's not giving an address. He's just, uh, we, we find out elsewhere, he says, well, go into the city and you'll see somebody carrying a water pot. Follow him to that house and to that owner. Why be so vague? It's because Judas is listening. The very one who is intent on taking the next opportunity to betray Jesus. Oh, we're going to have a private dinner. All I need to know is where that is, and I can inform the authorities. But having heard the instruction and having seen the two assigned disciples go their way into the city, from what Jesus has said, Judas has no idea where they're going that night. Christ has just taken control of the situation. 
He is not going to prevent Judas from satisfying himself, but he can delay it. He can guarantee I get one more private dinner with my disciples, and there's nothing Judas can do to interfere with it. So the disciples in verse 19 did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. All of that then gets us to uh, verses 20 to 25, where Jesus is enjoying the Passover with his disciples, the actual Jewish festival. There's There's a process that they need to follow, and they're engaged in that. And now as that meal begins to close, Jesus directs everybody's attention around the table to the issue of Judas's betrayal. Here's how he says it. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12, and as they were eating, he said, imagine the announce, what this announcement, how it's going to impact the disciples. Truly, I say to you, One of you, one of you is the point, will betray me. Now, we might have expected that at that point, all eyes turned to Judas. I've been wondering about him for some time now. He just doesn't seem to be one of us, does he? Oh, yeah, I bet it's Judas. Nobody suspected Judas. What's that tell us? That a human heart that has already shifted allegiance from Christ to self can cover it up beautifully to the extent that nobody else even suspects. Who do the disciples suspect? Well, tellingly, Every one of them suspects himself. They respond in verse 22 with great sorrow. They were very sorrowful and began to say uh, to him one after the other, is it I, Lord? Nobody's saying, is it him? Is it I? What's that telling us about the disciples? They know they are weak in this area. None of them are saying, no, not not me. Oh, I could do that. I know the pressure of, of wanting more. I have to admit to myself in my heart Yes, I could be tempted there. Now, not that any of them are imagining themselves to could possibly do what Judas is planning, but could I, in a weak moment, could I stumble into greed to the extent that I would deny Christ? Christ is showing that he knows the condition of your heart, are you willing to admit, yeah, I I could, I could be tempted? His response in verse 23 just makes the whole situation more tense. 
He says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, with those words, don't imagine that they're all trying to remember who dipped in that tray, because they all did. They've all been dipping. That's part of the meal. You take some bread, you dip it in this uh, savory sauce. I dipped. Rather than this giving any clue as to who it might be, I, I like to imagine at this point when he, when he intensifies the conviction that they hear, oh, it's somebody who dipped in the dish with me. Oh, I, I, I can imagine moans going out. Oh, because what he just said was, it's one of you who are the regular recipients of my provision. Christ provided this meal. To have enjoyed what he provided and yet betray him. To be a recipient of God's goodness comes with obligation. Obligation of loyalty to him. Making loving things more than him, a detestable betrayal. And he knows. Verse 24, Christ gives us a little more insight. He says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. Written in God's word, meaning that this is God's plan. In the midst of this horrible announcement, one of my own disciples is going to betray me. Christ is acknowledging the sovereign will of God. God is going to have his way. God's plan is uh, going to be accomplished. Divine sovereignty continues at work even in such a circumstance. But there's another aspect of this that we need to take into account, and that is human responsibility. God has a plan. He's going to have his way. But people make their own choices. Son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Judas had a choice. He could have said, no, I'm going to keep the Lord first. He could have said no. He chose to indulge himself, to get more for himself even though it was going to cost his relationship with God. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. I read a so-called biblical scholar this past week who expressed his opinion that he thinks uh, ultimately Judas is a believer and we're going to see him in heaven someday. I'm not sure he was uh, taking into account verse 24 when he wrote those words. 
I don't see how that's possible. Judas certainly would have have made a profession of faith in Christ, but are we going to see him in heaven? Now, that profession was apparently never genuine. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, who was looking for an opportunity, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. You have said so. That's kind of tantalizing for us. What exactly does that mean? Is he saying yes? Well, actually, it is an affirmative answer, but it's just vague enough that nobody knows for sure. The other disciples still have no idea it's Judas. They're still examining their own hearts and asking for God's grace. Two people know. Judas knows. And he knows that Jesus knows. This answer was clear enough for him to conclude, he knows my heart. He knows what I'm going to do. In fact, John gives us more insight that's very important at this point as well. As Christ goes on to say, what you do, do quickly. And at that moment, Judas got up and walked out of the room. Still, to nobody's suspicion, they all thought, well, he's going, Christ just told him to give some money to the poor or to buy some money, use some money to buy some more provisions. Something honest, that's what they're assuming. There goes Judas out the door. And John tells us it was night. Judas was getting an opportunity in that last interview to change his mind, to examine his heart, to turn from sin. And if he had made that choice, he would have been welcome to the very next event of the evening, which is the Lord's Supper. He could have chosen to repent, and instead he chose to depart. There's the tragedy. Given an opportunity to change, Judas said, no. No, I'm hanging on to this course of action. I am hanging on to this direction, seemingly unmindful that a direction of life leads to a destination. So examining the heart, Apostle Paul in his presentation of the Lord's Supper urges that those that participate examine your heart. And you have two choices. You can turn from sin, you can confess, you can ask for God's grace. I could be tempted by things. I could be tempted by money. God, would you cleanse me of that? Would you keep me from that? Or you also have the, uh, I wouldn't 
it, it would probably be more self-incriminating than you could stand. You don't have to depart, but you can just let the plates pass by in a few moments. By all means, do not participate if you aren't ready to walk with God. Examine your heart. Ask for his forgiveness for whatever sin or inclination you see there. Let's take that opportunity to examine our hearts. Then I'll close in prayer and we'll sing to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Father, this is a very sobering moment for us. It's a sobering passage. Father, it is also your decision to include this passage right before the institution of the Lord's Supper. So as we turn to that table, as we commit ourselves to follow that, that procedure, to remind ourselves of what it means, we're also prompted now to having examined our hearts to confess we find sin there. We find sinful inclinations. Father, we confess that we are temptable. We pray for your cleansing. Pray that you would change our sinful nature. We ask, Father, for victory over the sin of greed, the sin of pleasing self. Father, help us to put Christ first. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.